Forensic experts have spent the night at a Melbourne home after the discovery of a body feared to be that of missing woman Sarah Kafferke. For the details, let's go live now to Today reporter Christina Hearn. Chris, tell us just how did police find this body? Well, Deb, Homicide Squad detectives executed a search warrant on this Point Cook property on Saturday night and found the grim discovery inside of a body believed to be that of missing Bacchus Marsh woman Sarah Kafferke. Now, the body hasn't been formally identified, but it was police investigating the missing woman, investigating the disappearance of the missing woman that found uh, this body. Now, what led them to this house, the police won't say, or even who lives inside. However, neighbours have told us that it is a house rented by two men who haven't been seen here for around about a week. Now, no arrests have been made. Police say the investigation is ongoing. Sarah was last seen by her mother on the 9th of November, 9th of this month, in Bacchus Marsh. Her car was then subsequently found last Thursday in Maribyrnong. That is when homicide detectives took over this investigation and then, of course, this grim discovery on the weekend in this new estate in Point Cook, which is, not surprisingly, rocked the neighbourhood. Let's have a listen to what some of the neighbours had to say. Uh, they knocked on our door at 8, uh, 8.15, uh, the cops did, asked if we uh, knew them. So that we just moved here six weeks ago. It's pretty <laughs> scary, to be honest. Yeah, really scary. There's a little plus one for some reason. Chris, we understand that Sarah Kafferkin had been involved in a dispute on Facebook just before she disappeared. Yeah, that's right, Deb. There have been threats posted on her Facebook site, which have now subsequently been taken down. But at the time, in response to some of these threats, Sarah had written, stop being immature over Facebook, I've had enough, I'll delete you if you're unable to be civil. Now police won't elaborate on these Facebook threats, whether they are indeed part of the investigation or something uh, unrelated, they say of course the investigation is ongoing, Deb, we are expected to know more in the next 24 hours when the coroner's office begins its investigation. Back to you. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you for listening. As always, we love hearing from you guys and your support is amazing. And a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome and we can't thank you enough. So this week we're going to thank Kirsty, Emma, Karen, Michelle, Ryan, Abby, Monica, N, and Sarah. There's a couple more to come next week as well. And if you are interested in grabbing some extra episodes, you can join our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. With that out of the way, I'll pass you over to Bill. Thanks, Harry. This week, we are discussing the 2012 murder of 22-year-old Sarah Kafferke. Sarah was the only child of her parents, Noelle Dixon and Adrian Kafferke. She was born on the 20th of June, 1990. Her early years were spent being raised in close-knit and, at the time, rural Backers Marsh amongst a loving group of family and friends. Her parents met in the early 1980s before getting married and purchasing a home in Backers Marsh. Unfortunately, the relationship between Adrian and Noelle didn't last and Adrian ended up moving to Queensland. Sarah would often visit her father in school holidays, accompanied by her mother, and he would also travel to Melbourne to see her. As she got older, she would fly up unaccompanied to spend time with her father until she got to her teenage years and preferred to hang out with her friends during the school holidays. She went to high school between Bacchus Marsh Grammar and Bacchus Marsh College until about year 11. 
Sarah's been described by her friends and family as bubbly, attractive and engaging. In year 12, she was homeschooled as she'd been having frequent hospitalisation due to asthma attacks. Sarah began experimenting with alcohol and illegal drugs and this became a big part of her life as she got older. Her use of substances got so bad that in August 2012, she attended a drug rehab detox facility in Bacchus Marsh to try and quit her drug and alcohol habits and make some positive changes in her life. She completed a week in rehab and left feeling positive, but within a month, she confessed to her mother that she had begun using illegal drugs again. She rebooked herself into the facility and was due to go back on the 13th of November 2012. Her problem with drugs and alcohol was quite detrimental to her life. On the 8th of November 2012, her employer, a hotel in Melton where she was a bar and gaming attendant, informed her that they were suspending her employment. Although they were happy to take her back on after she got some help and got her life together, she had become too unreliable. The same week, Sarah spent quite a bit of her time at her friend Stephen James Hunter's house, drinking alcohol taking GHB and smoking ice. On the 7th, she attended his house with a girlfriend. Hunter was 47 years old and obviously a lot older than Sarah. It was quite an unlikely friendship, but the two had alcohol, drugs and partying in common. They had met through their network of friends and Sarah would often visit his house in Bacchus Marsh as well as his other property where he spent his time in Point Cook. Sarah accepted Hunter in a way that not many others did, and she wasn't put off by the fact that he had a criminal history and had spent time in prison. Despite the age difference, the friendship was reportedly a genuine one, and Hunter would later say that he saw himself as a father figure to Sarah. He denied their relationship was sexual and stated that he was not attracted to her. So... When Sarah lost her job, it sent her down into a bit of a spiral and on the 10th of November, Sarah went to Hunter's house and the pair started drinking a large quantity of alcohol and smoking ice. On the 12th of November, 2012, Noelle Dixon, Sarah's mother, became concerned about her daughter. She realised she hadn't heard from her since the 8th of November and it was unusual for them not to speak for that length of time. She gave one of Sarah's friends a call at lunchtime to see if she had seen Sarah, to which she replied that she hadn't seen Sarah since the 9th of November. And that's the friend that she'd gone to to Hunter's house with and had alcohol and drugs. Sarah's friend then exchanged text messages with Hunter, thinking that Sarah might have been with him. She asked him if he knew where Sarah was, to which he replied that he didn't. He said he had also tried calling her, but had had no luck. After trying to contact Sarah all day, Noel Dixon called the Bacchus Marsh Police Station and made a formal report that Sarah was missing. Bacchus Marsh Police, knowing that Sarah had spent time with Hunter the previous week, sent him a text message asking him to contact them regarding missing person Sarah Kafferke. On the 15th of November, Sarah's Silver Holden Astra was found by a member of the public and they reported it to Crime Stoppers. It was discovered in Owen Street in Maribyrnong. The following day, police obtained a warrant to seize Sarah's car, along with Stephen James Hunter's car, which had broken down along the Western Highway in Melton. On the 17th of November 2012, Homicide Squad detectives obtained a search warrant for the inside of Hunter's Bacchus Marsh unit. 
While a quick search on the 14th had revealed nothing of significance, forensic examination of the unit revealed that a serious assault had taken place on the premises. At the same time, homicide detectives also attended the property at Point Cook, where Hunter spent a lot of time. They had a search warrant for that property also. While investigators looked around, they could smell the odour of decay coming from the garage. As they searched around, they came to believe the smell was coming from a green wheelie bin that was standing inside the garage. They also discovered significant bloodstains on the floor around the bin and on a stepladder next to the bin. They also found empty bags of rapid-set concrete and a container of acid. The bin was extremely heavy due to the concrete and had to be removed to be taken to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine on the 18th of November. At the VIFM, the bin was CT scanned and this revealed that there was the body of an adult in the bottom part of the bin surrounded by hardened concrete. The body was removed from the concrete for further examination. On the same day, forensic pathologist Dr Michael Burke of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine conducted a post-mortem examination on the female body believed to be missing woman Sarah Kafferke. Postmortem examination revealed that the woman had multiple stab injuries, including wounds to the aorta, the left carotid artery, lungs, liver, and a combination of sharp and blunt force injuries to the calvarium, which is the skull cap. Dr. Burke has been quoted as stating, the degree of force required to cause the sharp and blunt injury through the skull vault would be described as severe to extreme. The post-mortem examination showed injuries to the upper limbs which could be described as defensive in nature. Soon after, the body was identified by dental records as belonging to Sarah Kafferke. Toxicology screening revealed the presence of alcohol, amphetamines, diazepam and cannabis along with other drugs. On the 20th of November 2012, Stephen James Hunter was tracked down to an address in Hawthorne where he was arrested and charged with the murder of Sarah Louise Kafferke. When police asked him if he knew why he was being taken into custody, he replied, yes, murder. He was taken to the St Kilda Road Police Complex and interviewed for over five separate blocks of time, in which he was expected to open up more each time. In the first block of time, he declined to reveal to police what had happened to Sarah. In the second block of time, he stated that he didn't want to talk about what had happened to Sarah and that he wanted to be locked up forever. He told police that he and Sarah clicked really well and got along well together. When investigators pressed him to talk about Sarah, he described her as grouse. In the third block of interview, Hunter openly admitted that he had killed Sarah, but would not go into any detail or talk about the murder. In the fourth block of time, Hunter told police about how he had tried to dispose of Sarah's body and that he wasn't able to lift the concrete wheelie bin because it was too heavy. He told them that he was the sole party responsible for killing Sarah and purchasing the items for the disposal of her body. In the fifth block of interview, Hunter told police that there was nothing sexual about the relationship between himself and Sarah and that he had finished an entire bottle of Sambuca and some Jack Daniels on the day that he had killed her. Police were able to piece together a timeline of what they believed happened to Sarah, as well as Hunter's cover-up, based on the information that Hunter gave them, along with other evidence. On the 10th of November, at approximately 1.56pm, 
Sarah went to the Foodworks supermarket in Bennett Street, Backers Marsh, and bought some alcohol. She then made her way to Hunter's house. After consuming a large quantity of alcohol and drugs, a fight occurred between Hunter and Sarah. Hunter claimed he was cleaning his unit when he found a used syringe that had been left there by a former girlfriend. Reportedly, he made a disparaging remark about junkies, referring to his ex-girlfriend, which Sarah mistakenly thought was directed at her. She was very sensitive to this word and had previously confided in a girlfriend that sometimes she felt like she was nothing but a junkie. And she was trying to turn her life yeah, around as well. And junkie is just not a nice term it's because not. people can end up in that way by all different circumstances. Yeah. It's not, that's such a derogatory term. It is. According to Hunter, it was at this point that Sarah hit him in the back. He then snapped and hit her back before attacking the defenceless young woman with a hammer and knife. He was a strong man, and at a petite 51 kilograms, she would have been no match for him as he overpowered her, causing her fatal injuries. Reportedly, Sarah most likely lost consciousness and died very quickly into the attack. Her skull showed a punched-in type of fracture caused by extreme force that would have knocked her out straight away. At this time, two girls playing in the driveway of the unit block heard a woman screaming along with pots and pans banging to the ground. Hunter then made contact with a number of his acquaintances through phone calls and text messages. At approximately 7pm that night, he called one associate and requested that he bring the spare keys to the Bacchus Marsh unit as he'd locked himself out. When the associate arrived, Hunter was standing at the letterbox at the front of the unit block. As the associate was handing the keys over to him, Hunter said, I don't know what I've done. The associate thought he might be referring to a falling out the pair had and told Hunter he wanted nothing to do with him before leaving the area. Following this exchange, Hunter drove to Tarnit, which is approximately 25 minutes from Bacchus Marsh, where some of his friends were hanging out. He left Sarah in the kitchen of the Bacchus Marsh unit. The next morning, Hunter sent a number of text messages to Sarah's phone in an obvious attempt to distance himself from suspicion in her disappearance. At 10.07am, he sent, Hey, ass bandit, just come to. Sue hung over. What are you up to? Followed by another message. Hey you, it's me. Give me a call when you want to catch up. And finally, at 1.36pm, need my keys, call me. Later that day, Hunter went back to the Bacchus Marsh area and wrapped Sarah's body in a plastic bag before removing her from his kitchen and putting her in the boot of his car. He went to the house of a friend and told them that he had the body of a young woman in his car. He stated that his friend had killed her and he had to get rid of her. Hunter asked his friend if he could bury the woman at his friend's family home in the country. Unsurprisingly, the friend declined, refusing to help Hunter and asked him to leave the area. The pair then drove to the city and bought some food before discussing the situation. Hunter stated that he needed to act quickly as the body was beginning to smell. After parting ways with his friend, Hunter went to the closest Bunnings warehouse, which for those outside of Australia is a hardware store, and he purchased a 20-litre container of hydrochloric acid, three bags of rapid-set concrete, and one bag of lime, as well as a roll of black plastic. On the morning of the 13th of November 2012, 
Hunter made his way to the Point Cook property that he had often frequented, with Sarah still in the boot of the car. He reversed his car up the driveway and took Sarah from the boot into the garage. He then put her into the green wheelie bin like she was a piece of rubbish. He emptied the bags of rapid-set concrete into the wheelie bin, followed by enough water to set it. Later that evening, a Bacchus Marsh police officer managed to get a hold of Hunter by telephone. He admitted he had been with Sarah the last day she was seen, but that he had left the unit at 5pm, leaving Sarah at 5pm with the keys. He told them when he returned two days later, Sarah was gone. He also stated he was currently living at the Point Cook residence. The following morning at approximately 8am, Hunter returned to the Bacchus Marsh area and removed Sarah's silver Holden Astra from the garage before abandoning it in Owen Street, Maribyrnong, where it was eventually found. After Hunter's arrest, information about his chequered past became public knowledge and what we learnt was absolutely shocking. As it turned out, Sarah was not the first young woman that Stephen James Hunter had murdered in cold blood. One year after graduating from Nidri High School in 1985, Hunter was working at a local supermarket. One of his co-workers, Jacqueline Matthews, who, like Sarah, was a bubbly, attractive young woman, had caught his eye. Reportedly, she didn't see him in that way, but it didn't stop him from making advances. At one point, he fell on top of her and kissed her non-consensually. After that, he was heard saying, "'Now that I've had a taste of her, I won't rest.'" On the 9th of April, 1986, Hunter and Jacqueline were hanging out in her car, in the car park of a different supermarket in Tullamarine. She had let him into the car under the pretense that she was going to drive him home and collect some keys that he needed for work. Reportedly, Hunter was making advances on Jacqueline, which she rejected, as she wasn't interested in him in that way. Angry at the rejection, Hunter stabbed her seven times in the heart and throat, he convinced a friend and co-worker to help him cover up the crime. Jacqueline was moved from the front of the car to the boot and the car was driven to a remote location. The car was then lit on fire along with her body and Hunter's bloody clothing. He then threw the bloody knife into a rubbish skip. When questioned, he denied his role in the murder to police. Eventually, investigators confronted him with an overwhelming amount of evidence and he finally confessed... The similarities between Sarah and Jacqueline's murders were not lost on the Melbourne public. How had a monster like Hunter been allowed on the streets to kill again? On the 25th of February 1988, Hunter was charged with 16 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 13 years for the murder of Jacqueline Matthews. The earliest he was to be let out was the 9th of December 2000 and this was actually the exact date that he was released. He had had his parole cancelled by the Adult Parole Board multiple times after getting out of prison for reasons including negative drug tests, failure to report when asked, kidnapping, stalking and recklessly causing injury and yet he was back out on the streets to kill Sarah. Despite his extensive history of violent crimes, including murder, he was initially found unsuitable when assessed for a violence intervention program with his score on a violence risk scale being low, which mm. is crazy. Like, how can you murder somebody, stalk people, assault people, and, and still low. have a low risk? I don't know how that system works. That's crazy. We've had this discussion with the children. Yeah. I just don't get that system. 
On the 25th of February 2011, Hunter was assessed using the Victorian Intervention Screening Assessment Tool and was deemed as a moderate risk of offending. Mm. So that's a little bit better. Mm. He was given parole again on the 30th of April 2011, which was set to expire in October 2012. Standard conditions were set to apply to his parole, including twice weekly reporting to his parole officer or case manager, assessments and treatment for alcohol and drug addiction as directed, no contact with his victims or their families, registration of his address with the adult parole board and to attend any meetings or programs required of him. Hunter did not show any interest in taking place in treatment and admitted that he did so only to satisfy the conditions of his parole. Throughout Hunter's treatment, some themes came up time and time again that came to the attention of his treating clinicians. This included the need for power, control and domination. If he felt like these were threatened, the risk of him becoming violent would escalate significantly. He utilised violence and aggression as his tool to gain power and control over others. While Hunter acknowledged his antisocial traits and thinking patterns, he showed no desire or motivation to address or change them. He was extremely sensitive to the judgment and criticism of others, and this was a major trigger for his violent, aggressive behaviour. It was also noted that he had a very hostile and demeaning attitude towards women. He seemed to see all women as falling into one of two categories, whores or virgins. If he considered a woman a whore, he had no empathy towards them, especially if they experience victimisation by men. He had no empathy or remorse in regards to his violence. Based on this information, it has to be asked whether the tools used to make an assessment about his suitability for parole were sufficient. Hunter's parole had expired just 10 days before he murdered Sarah. On the 12th of August 2013, the case of the DPP versus Stephen James Hunter began and he pled guilty to Sarah's murder. During his trial, we learnt more about Hunter and his upbringing. He was born on the 6th of October 1965 and had two younger sisters. His upbringing was described in court as characterised by abuse, neglect, substance abuse and family violence. His father would lock the three children in a room before abusing their mother. Eventually, his mother left his father and married his best friend, who was also abusive towards the children. Hunter left home at 14 years old and had little to do with his family from that point onwards. His mother died in 1994. Prior to the murder of Jacqueline, Hunter had a baby with his then-girlfriend, which obviously didn't stop his eyes from wandering. This was one of the key reasons he was given a lenient sentence, although his son chose not to have contact with him either. Hunter had been a drug addict throughout the whole time he was out of prison. In the lead-up to Sarah's murder, he was using ice and speed four to five times per week. He was also using these drugs in the lead-up to Jacqueline's murder. Hunter had never received formal psychiatric or psychological care until after his arrest for Sarah's murder. In court, Professor Ogloff suggested that Hunter had antisocial personality disorder, which was characterised by a high degree of insensitivity, poor anger control, impulsivity and a lack of empathy. Given his age, personality and criminal history, the prognosis for any chance that he would turn his life around and improve were not good. His actions had always been consistent with self-preservation rather than remorse. 
Sarah's family and friends, as well as the broader community, were devastated by Sarah's death and the circumstances surrounding it. Her friends and family were traumatised by her disappearance, murder and the treatment of her body. Noelle told the judge in her victim impact statement that every time she took the bins out, she pictured her daughter being thrown out like garbage, which is just so horrible. That's horrible. Supreme Court Justice Kevin Bell stated that Hunter didn't deserve to be released back into the community and Stephen James Hunter was handed the harshest penalty in Australia of never to be released. Noelle cried when the judgment was read out. She stated, I finally have faith in the justice system that everything else has gone well today. One of the most powerful quotes came from the judges after the sentence was read out as everyone breathed a sigh of relief that this monster would never walk the streets again. And this is the quote. The fact that he could commit a second murder with similar aggravating features more than 26 years after the first demonstrates powerfully just how dangerous a person he is. He is, a da- he is as dangerous at 47 as he was at 20. There was nothing in the evidence before the sentencing judge which should have persuaded him that the risk would materially lessen in the decades ahead. Sarah's life was cut short before she had a chance to turn her life around and reach her full potential. Our thoughts go out to her family, friends and loved ones, along with those of Jacqueline Matthews. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Please join us again next week for a new episode. And until then, please stay safe.